Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Monday, September 26th, 2022. It's been 3,132 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 215 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start, as we do, with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Russian defensive lines east of the Oskil River, from Ryanikivka to Lozov, are under tremendous pressure from Ukrainian forces, and Russian command and control are likely paralyzed. Second, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are on the brink of catastrophe due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violating the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts already in Ukraine and on the battlefront. Third, political and civil unrest is growing over partial mobilization, which may intensify if Russia moves to declare war and martial law after the sham referendums for annexation are over. Criticism of mobilization has spilled over to some of Putin's closest allies and within the state Duma. Fourth, our assessment that the broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people could increase the risk of political upheaval was accurate, with the security situation in Dagestan deteriorating as protests expand. Fifth, we assess that the risk of getting trapped in the mutually assured destruction-instability paradox due to threatening language from the Kremlin on the use of nuclear weapons has intensified, based on statements made by Sergei Lavrov, and the response from the United States government. Sixth, we maintain the sham referendums will not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters. However, Western nuclear powers have stated they have been forced to take Russia's nuclear threats seriously. Seventh, we maintain the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut Solidar is beyond pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. The mobilization of additional resources from the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, is an exercise in futility. Eighth, we maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and battlefield conditions, Russian troops will seek to surrender. And last but not least, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse. Let's get some regional updates, and while we're there, check in on both belligerents' objectives. 
starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian objective here is to hold referendums for Russian annexation by September 27th, hold existing defensive lines, protect remaining lines of communication, those are called locks, they're supply lines, defend Kherson, prevent envelopment on the western side of the Dnipro River, and restrict insurgent activity. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. Ukraine maintains tight operational security, and Russian sources did not provide much intelligence. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported fighting for control of Bezimen, and they clarified it was the one in the Kherson Oblast. Thanks, guys. They did not report a change in territorial control. Operational Command South reported a Russian reconnaissance squad attempted to probe Ukrainian defenses in the area of Arkhangelsk, and it did not end well for them. The Russian Ministry of Defense also reported fighting in Lyubimivka, indicating that Ukraine is pushing back to regain lost ground. Russian forces in northern Kherson are laying anti-personnel and anti-tank mines in anticipation of a renewed counteroffensive. A Russian ammunition depot in Ternovipodi was destroyed, indicating that the village is back under Russian control. If you listen really closely, you might hear the screams of our map editor saying, No, I'm not changing the map again. You do it. We consider the settlement a no-man's land. OCS reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed nine airstrikes and ground forces launched 310 fire missions. Russian troops and equipment staged in Bereslav were destroyed, along with ammunition depots in Bezimen, in Mykolaiv, Kalinivka, and the Kinburn Spit. Kalinivka is 75 kilometers from the line of conflict and was likely struck by rockets fired by HIMARS, and NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, appeared to confirm the strike near Vasilivka on the Kinburn Spit. In Russian-occupied Skadovsk, a training base for the operation of Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones was hit in a HIMARS attack. The strike destroyed two command and control vehicles and reportedly killed some of the trainers. The Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson was struck again, along with makeshift ferry port infrastructure. The temporary bridge repair at Novokhovka was damaged in a separate attack. A Russian Su-25 was shot down over Kherson, and the pilot was able to eject. A Russian Mi-8 helicopter flew in to extract the pilot and was shot down. The Russian military has lost six aircraft in 36 hours, while flying only 40 to 50 combat missions per day theater-wide. Those are not great odds. Before yesterday's show, we were not able to clarify if the HIMARS strike on the Play Hotel in Kherson caused the death of former Ukrainian parliament member and Russian collaborator Alexei Zhuravko, or if he was killed in a separate attack. Well, we can now confirm that Zhuravko and his bodyguard were killed in the strike. Russian state media agency Russia Today deleted their initial report that confirmed that military personnel were staying in the hotel and military vehicles parked next to the property were damaged in the attack. Ukrainian air defenses shot down an Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 loitering munition used by Russia near the city of Mykolaiv. There were no casualties or damage, with the debris landing in an unpopulated area. 
Mykolaiv was hit by rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, that caused damage to residential buildings. There were no casualties reported. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. To recap, Kherson was not a feint or a deception for the Kharkiv offensive. The Russian Ministry of Defense was already brought to a state of combat destroyed in early July after capturing Luhansk Oblast, and their offensive lost momentum into early August. The Russian Ministry of Defense would have deployed its reserve forces somewhere, and another axis would have ended up collapsing. Trapping 25 to 35,000 troops west of the Dnipro River really limits Russian options. Even if all the bridges and railroad lines were available, it would have taken days to redeploy their reserves back to the Kharkiv Oblast, even under the very best of circumstances. The Kherson counteroffensive is taking longer and is more difficult because the terrain heavily favors the defender and Russian tactics and military doctrine. We had assessed on July 28th that progress would start slow in Kherson and accelerate as Russian forces are worn down and supplies become scarce. Ukraine is seeking victory in Kherson, but unlike Kharkiv, the strategy goes beyond kinetic warfare. There are continued indications that Russian forces are experiencing supply issues, and Ukrainian artillery capabilities in Kherson are close to parity with far greater accuracy. So let me say again, Ukraine is not seeking a kinetic victory, but intends to starve Russian forces of supplies. It is essential to recognize that 25,000 Russian troops are in a technical encirclement west of the Dnipro River. Russian military doctrine is heavily dependent on artillery fire. Consumption of ammunition, fuel, medicine, and spare parts is unsustainable due to the destroyed GLOCs. Additionally, any Russian position abandoned with equipment or ammunition left behind can almost immediately be put into service by Ukraine. Now, it could take days, weeks, or even months for Russian supplies to become exhausted. But at some point, they will run out of resources if they don't regain control of the bridges and repair them. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective here is to claim annexation of northern Zaporizhia after the referendum in Russian-occupied regions, interdict personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and prepare area civilian population for the possibility of a nuclear accident. Don't panic. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that the plant was shelled for the second day in a row. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not released a statement since Friday. Surprisingly enough, there were no reports of significant shelling or rocket attacks on Nikopol. Russia continues to launch terror attacks on Zaporizhia, with at least one S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for ground attack landing in the city and another on a nearby village. There weren't any casualties reported, but the missile strike did knock out utilities in the area. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective here is to hold a referendum on annexation by September 27th, defend the existing line of conflict, 
and end the insurrection that is throughout the Russian-controlled territory. The Ukrainian objective is to fix Russian assets in place to prevent redeployment, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and support and expand the insurrection in occupied territories. Here's an important clarification, folks. The OCS report that Russian forces used chemical weapons against Ukrainian troops using a drone was disputed and determined likely to be inaccurate. The UAV-delivered K-51 grenade was used in Doroshnyanka. However, the device cannot deliver chlorpicrin, also known as PS gas, because it is highly corrosive to plastic. The K-51 is explicitly designed to deliver CS gas, an aerosolized powder dispersed by heat and activated by water. There was only sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Juliapola to Orihiv. The strike on Tokmak on September 24th was a destroy-enemy air defense mission. An S-300 defense system was, in fact, destroyed, along with its support ammunition warehouse. In southwest Donetsk, the Russian objective is to hold a referendum on annexation by September 27th, maintain existing defensive lines, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia did not make any claims about ground fighting or successes on the battlefield. They did, however, report that Ukraine completed over 350 fire missions across the oblast. Militia leaders claimed that their units destroyed two BM-21 Grad rocket launchers and three trucks across the entire oblast during fighting on Sunday. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported minimal fighting. Earlier reports that elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR were withdrawn from the Avdivka front and distributed to the north near Bakhmut and the south near Volodar were accurate. This withdrawal and redistribution reduced fighting to reconnaissance and positional battles along the entire front. Elements of the DNR militia tried to improve their positions near Kamyanka, but were unsuccessful. There was positional fighting near Pervomaiske, with no change in the situation. Ukrainian and Russian forces mostly traded artillery and mortar fire near Novomikhailivka, with limited attempts by the DNR militia to move closer to Ukrainian lines. There were reports by both Russian and Ukrainian sources of fighting near Pavlivka, with no change in the tactical situation. In the Bakhmut area, the Russian objective remains as clear as mud and I'm really not sure what else to say about it. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend G-locks, which are lines of communication on the ground. So the situation here is in reruns, apparently. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, attempted to regain lost ground east of Solidar, but made no progress. It is worth noting that Deep State reported that Wagner had made some progress and had possibly advanced to the area of the wine factory. They are a very reliable source and have deep connections, but their claim was an outlier. P. 
PMC Wagner also led an advance on Bakhmut, but remained blocked along the defensive line established by Ukraine on the M3 highway. A Russian unit tried to flank Ukrainian defensive positions by advancing toward Pirhorodne, but found the road to success was paved with live ammunition fired in their direction and said, Not today. PMC Wagner continued their attempts to capture Kurdyumivka. They were successful in increasing the bank account of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but found no success on the battlefield. The Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat were withdrawn from the area due to heavy casualties and poor performance, including losing ground south of the Mayorsk railroad station. They've been replaced by the 1st Army Corps of the DNR, 3rd Brigade. DNR militia forces attempted to advance on Zaitseve and Mayorsk and proved themselves no more capable than the Kadyrovites. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, the Russian objective is to hold annexation referendums by September 27th, hold current defensive lines, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, prevent the retreat of Russian soldiers from Lehman, make opportunistic territorial gains, support insurgents, and interdict supplies. The situation for Russian forces in northeastern Donetsk and southeastern Kharkiv continues to deteriorate. Russian defensive lines northeast of Lehman and east of the Oskil Reservoir are buckling. Ukrainian forces have advanced as much as 27 kilometers over the weekend, building on gains made in the middle of last week. Based on multiple reports, we consider Rydkutov and Nova liberated. Ukrainian forces crossed the Donetsk-Kharkiv administrative border to Izumsky, with some reports claiming the advance has gone as far as Chernyshina. We're not prepared to map the advance that far north, based on the limited information available, however. From Rydkodab, Ukraine continued to advance east, reaching Novomikhailivka. There remain conflicting reports on the status of Drobesheve, but the situation for Russian troops is not good with only the Liman-Zarichna ground line of communication, or G-Log, that's a supply line, remaining. Recent videos from War Gonzo and the DNR militia did not show the road approach into Lehman, indicating that the drive is becoming, let's say, challenging. The DNR attempted to make an all-is-well video showing mobile referendum voting coming to Lehman, which was calm, but a ghost town. Only one woman was shown voting, and it's unclear if she was a resident or part of the DNR entourage. Another video showed the situation in Torske, east of Zarich, was calm and under Russian control. On the outskirts of Lehman, Ukrainian forces fought with a combination of DNR militia and potentially Chechen forces. In the engagement against a Russian platoon, 11 Russian soldiers were killed and four were taken prisoner. Based on the available intelligence, we maintain Khalushenkov, Zelena Dolina, Shandrykhalova, Novoselivka, Droboshevi, and Stavki as contested. Some assessment here. We maintain that Ukrainian forces want to avoid attacking Lehman head-on and are working toward complete encirclement. Droboshevi is reportedly lightly defended by Bar's troops, which reportedly have not communicated with anyone in more than two days. Russian troops in Lehman will likely fight until the situation is entirely untenable. The question of morale will become critical when and if Ukraine can achieve a complete encirclement. 
Based on the last seven months, it seems unlikely that Russian troops will fight to the death. Units reportedly with PMC Wagner continued their attempts to advance in the direction of Vimka from Berestov, and there continues to be positional fighting around Spirna in the direction of the Verknokamyanka oil refinery. The HIMARS attack on Alchevsk struck an ammunition depot and a base of Wagner mercenaries. There are reports of heavy casualties. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported there were HIMARS strikes in Mankivka and Severodonetsk. The attack on Mankivka hit a Russian barracks and ammunition warehouse. While it was unclear if Severodonetsk was a barracks, ammunition warehouse, or both. Insurgents set fire to annexation polling stations in Shastya and Severodonetsk. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, where the Russian objective is to retreat and minimize casualties, prevent Ukrainian forces from advancing from their bridgeheads on the east bank of the Oskil River, and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. There wasn't any information from Ukrainian or Russian sources on the situation along the Oskil River in Kharkiv. A series of grisly pictures and videos allegedly from east of Kupyansk show Russian forces suffered catastrophic losses on September 24th. We are working on geolocation and authentication. It is reported that poorly equipped and lightly armed Russian conscripts, likely not part of the mobilization that started on Wednesday, charged Ukrainian lines without basic training. The photos and video resemble the carnage of World War II, and we will likely not share the video. The amount and severity of carnage shown are really over the top. Other pictures and videos of fighting east of the Oskil River continue to emerge, including the destruction of a Russian R-33OZH Zytel mobile electronic warfare complex and an Orlin-10 reconnaissance drone launch complex with command and control systems destroyed near Krochmalne. The complex was wiped out by drone-directed artillery that was incredibly accurate. Ukrainian forces also captured an ancient Russian T-62 tank, with production ending in 1973. They were able to drive it off under its own power, despite plumes of smoke coming from the engine. Rasputitsa is starting to arrive, with Ukrainian forces recording the attempted recovery of a Max Pro mine-resistant ambush protection, or MRAP, vehicle buried to the axles in infamous Ukrainian mud. Our assessment in Kharkiv? Essentially, there is nothing in social intelligence, satellite imaging, or NASA firms, which was limited due to weather, that makes us believe there is a significant change to the Ukrainian bridgeheads. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Russia turned its focus from civilian targets to military ones, using Shahed-136 loitering drones to finally attack military targets. On Sunday morning, Operational Command South's headquarters building was hit in Odessa by three kamikaze drones, setting the building on fire. The building was unoccupied and had only been lightly used since the start of the war. 
On Sunday night, an Iranian kamikaze drone destroyed a Ukrainian ammunition depot in Zatoka, causing a massive fire. Officials were evacuating civilians in what was a rare targeting success for Russian forces. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Did you know that it has been exactly zero days since the issue of nuclear war was raised? During an interview on Sunday, United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that if Russia were to use a nuclear weapon, that the, quote, consequences would be horrific, end quote. This was the strongest public statement made by the United States about a response to a nuclear strike since the 1980s. The public statement follows reports that the United States has been using back channels to warn the Kremlin at the highest level that the response if Russia were to use nuclear weapons would be, quote, catastrophic. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told Margaret Brennan on the United States TV program Face the Nation that he didn't believe the Kremlin was bluffing in its threats against Ukraine, saying, quote, he, Putin, wants to scare the whole world. These are the first steps of his nuclear blackmail. I don't think he's bluffing. I think the world is deterring it and containing this threat. We need to keep putting pressure on him and not allow him to continue. End quote. All of this Sunday commentary was in response to a speech by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at the United Nations on Saturday, where a thinly veiled threat was made that nuclear weapons would be on the table after the annexation of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia was complete. Some assessment here. Since early March, the United States has refused to comment on Russia's nuclear threats. When reporters have asked United States President Joe Biden, he's used a canned response, quote, Do you think I would tell you what our plans are? End quote. President Biden understands operational security and that you don't idly threaten to throw nuclear weapons at people. Washington's position has been that it would be irresponsible to even acknowledge the threats because making nuclear threats is irresponsible in the U.S. government's view. The shift and consistent messaging from multiple officials hint that Biden's advisors consider Moscow's threats are viable. Ukraine received its first NASM's air defense system with the troops trained in its operation. The system is considered the most advanced in the world and was jointly created by Norway and the United States. The system is complex and has a long lead time for production. NASM's is deployed in the United States to defend cities such as Washington, D.C. Now, to provide added clarification here, the deployments were done before Biden became president and have been a part of U.S. national defense for years. So you can stop digging that backyard bunker and trying to figure out if canned food exposed to a nuclear blast is safe to eat or not. Let's move on and talk about Russian mobilization. Russia's military mobilization of 300,000 people in what is reported to be the first of four waves that will total 1.2 million conscripts continues to go very poorly. Dagestan has become a hotspot with growing protests and increasing violence. In Makhachkala, the capital of the federal district, protesters and police got into fistfights with shots fired into the air which did nothing to disperse the crowds. In the village of Andiri, 110 residents received mobilization notices. Residents moved to block the main highway, snarling traffic with hundreds on the roadway. 
One video recorded the sound of machine gun fire, which didn't appear to deter the protests. At the time of recording, protests were spreading throughout the Republic. The Kremlin may not have many options. With large numbers of National Guard and internal security forces already deployed to Ukraine, over 17 recruiting offices have been set on fire since Wednesday across Russia, spanning all 11 time zones. Video showed the offices in Irkutsk being torched. The Kremlin sent a telegram, not the app, like an actual telegram, ordering all commissariats to issue deferments to all IT specialists. Such as computer programmers and systems engineers, Surgeon Viktor Dyachok, 59, recorded himself explaining he has skin cancer, is blind in one eye, and has poor hearing. Despite his medical conditions, he was mobilized to be a field medic without a physical exam. In an earlier situation report, we reported that a different Moscow doctor had attempted to join the Russian military as a surgeon. He was told that he could only enlist as a nursing assistant or combat medic because he had no prior military experience and his university did not have a military program. He could only apply to become an officer as a doctor after three years of military service. A woman reported her 45-year-old husband received only one day of training before being sent to the front in the Donbas, assigned to the Third Motorized Rifle Division, 237th Tank Regiment. According to Twitter user Defman, the Russian Third Motor Rifle Division is currently east of Borova and not far from some of the most brutal fighting in Ukraine. The woman claims her husband was among a thousand men who were deployed. This aligns with our own intelligence and reports from the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine. However, it will all be okay. FSB agent and Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill said during his Sunday sermon that quote. Sacrifice in the course of carrying out your military duty cleanses away all sins. End quote. If I'm being honest, that seems like a fancier way of saying work sets you free. Valentina Matvienko, a Putin ally who chairs Russia's upper legislative chamber of the Federation Council, wrote on her Telegram, and by that I mean the app, not a piece of paper, that she knows men who are ineligible to fight receiving mobilization summons. She wrote, quote, "Such excesses are absolutely unacceptable. I consider it absolutely right that they are triggering a sharp reaction in society." End quote. Vyacheslav Volodyan, the speaker of Russia's lower chamber in the State Duma, also said he was receiving complaints, writing on Telegram. Once again, that's the app, not the piece of paper. Quote, "Authorities at every level should understand their responsibilities." End quote. Okay, sidebar. Because honestly, I'm still absolutely flummoxed that the Kremlin sent a paper telegram. Like, do you guys not have email? In the federal district of Krasnoyarsk, Commissariat Oleg Tikhonchuk appeared to dismiss orders from the Kremlin to follow conscription guidelines, declaring they would mobilize quote everyone, regardless of category. That will go really well. Videos continue to flood the internet from mobilized soldiers showing they've been issued rotting and broken equipment and lack the most basic needs for military to be successful. One video showed conscripts in an empty barracks with no furniture, not even beds, with conscripts trying to sleep on the floor and others using camping pads. In Samara, conscripts haven't been provided any shelter or sleeping bags, 
and built fires to try and keep themselves warm. In Kazakhstan, border guards captured a group of Russian men trying to sneak across the international border to avoid conscription. The men were captured and handed over to Russian authorities. Russian women lined the highway checkpoint and mocked the men fleeing conscription, calling them traitors and cowards. Others are taking more extreme measures against mobilization. In Rezan, a man set himself on fire, shouting he did not want to go to war. In the city of Ustelimsk, a 25-year-old conscript who was mobilized shot the local commissariat at near point-blank range, with the incident caught on video. Panicked recruits ran from the room. It is reported the man who was shot died of his wounds in the hospital. Everything is going to plan, huh? In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Ukrainian officials reported that they'd started their investigations on two more mass grave sites near Izum, and it isn't good news. A second site reportedly holds more than 500 victims, and exhumation has begun. Members of the press will be at the site tomorrow. Irina Verishchuk, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Reintegration of the Temporarily Occupied Territories, provided an official number of Ukrainian prisoners of war in Russian custody, 2,500. The number includes hundreds of women and some civilians. Verishchuk said, quote, Civilians have not been released for several exchange rounds in a row. We must raise the topic and demand that civilians be released. They must be returned, not exchanged. End quote. Olga Stefanishnia, Deputy Prime Minister for European and Euro-Atlantic Integration of Ukraine, told the United Nations that up to 1.5 million Ukrainians are being held in Russia against their will and are isolated from their families. Mariana Mamanova, the red-haired Azovstal defender who was pregnant when the siege started, gave birth to a healthy baby girl just days after her release from Russian captivity. The baby weighed over 3,000 grams, that's about 7 pounds. The name wasn't shared, but she was born free. Alexei Milchakov, leader of the neo-Nazi terrorist organization Rusich Group, who recently claimed he couldn't fight in Ukraine or be mobilized because he has a problem with his feet, wrote a guide on Telegram on how to execute Ukrainian prisoners. He recommended to his followers to interrogate prisoners first, then execute them on the grounds of being a Nazi. After killing them, he recommended taking their papers and identification, burying the body, and marking the location. Then he recommends contacting the family and demanding a bribe to share where the body was buried. Hey, by the way, some members of the United States Boogaloo movement and far-right organizations in the United States and Europe train and fight with the Rusich Group and the terrorist organization Russia Imperialist Movement. Just thought I'd put that out there. In geopolitical news, CSTO members Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan signed a ceasefire agreement. However, it was unclear if it was holding. The Foreign Office of Pakistan expressed concern over the ongoing fighting due to the Pakistani population that lives in the disputed territories. A large part of the border has remained unmarked, fueling fierce disputes over water and land. 
Pakistan blamed the dispute on Soviet-era decisions when Moscow created arbitrary boundaries which were settled among multiple ethnicities. Just days after Russia was defeated in Kharkiv, the CSTO alliance started to crack apart with fighting between members. Moscow also refused to honor an Article 4 request for mutual protection from Armenia. And in economic news, Moscow is manipulating the value of the ruble to chase the declining price of energy, with the exchange rate set to open at 58 rubles for one U.S. dollar this morning. Crude oil was set to open lower, with WTI opening at $78 a barrel and Brent at $86 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market opened trading at $2.36 a gallon, or $0.62 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures are also trending lower, at $8.70 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.